Welcome back to the career series, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time to catch up with Kessner. Today, we have a master's in public health student at NYU and a new friend that I just made recently. So go ahead. If you are interested in hearing more stories about master's in public health or community advocacy, like, share, subscribe, comment, download the episode, whatever platform you're on. We both really appreciate that. But Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to, to get into it today. But I guess just starting off for, for everyone, Chris, for the people that don't know who you are, quick introductions. Who are you? What are you up to? We'll start off with that. Okay. Um, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm from Westchester, New York, which is a suburb right outside of the city. Um, I am a second generation American Filipino. And like Kessner said, I am an MPH student um, at NYU, uh, finishing up my degree. Um, I am also a gymnast stripper. And that's all I have for right now. <laughs> nice. A lot of good things that we'll, we'll get to talk about today that you mentioned. But I guess just starting off, knowing a little bit about your upbringing and, and what you described as second generation American Filipino, where your mother was really never allowed to let you forget her own adversity, but still managed for, to have some room and exposure to a privileged environment. Speak about the struggles that brought into your life early on. Okay. So uh, like what was mentioned, um, I'm, of a privileged background. Uh, Westchester is a very high cost of living area in the United States. Um, both of my parents are immigrants from the Philippines. My mom is from a town called Putotan, Iloilo. Mm. Um, my father is from the citywide part of Manila, uh, Mandaluyong. Uh -huh. um, but both are ethnically Ilongo mm. and both had a struggle to come to America for my brother and my upbringing. Yeah. Um, so let's begin with my mom. Um, my mom grew up in poverty. Mm. Um, she's a military brat. Okay. Um, she was technically born in Pampanga, Mm. Um, she's the eldest of seven. She became a nurse because my Lola and my Lolo depended on her to help raise her siblings. Mm -hmm. So at the age of 22, she had finished her nursing degree, moved to Manila on her own, um, worked as an OR nurse for an eye surgeon. And after a couple of years, she was recruited by my father's stepmom to work in Harlem, New York. At that time, my dad, who has a degree in AB economics from Jose Rizal College, um, was a driver for my stepmom. Mm -hmm. And as fate had had it, he had picked up my mom from the airport and and brought her to 
her lodging place, which was arranged by my father's stepmom. Um, and she very much, as the immigrant story goes, worked hard in mm -hmm. order to provide for a better life for her siblings and her prospective children. All right. These are the stories that I'm told when I think about what I'm doing for a living, mm -hmm. what I'm aiming to do, and how, how much grit is required um, in order to accomplish these things that I'm set up to do. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can definitely relate on a degree of, you know, that I guess having a close connection with the, with Filipino history, right. And sharing some of the same maybe experiences of having that American Filipino culture of immigrant parents and this idea of struggling and toiling to wanting a better opportunity, not just for my family, for my future family, but my current family. Right. I think one thing that you just mentioned was, you know, your mom had to really work hard for her, for own, her own financial situation to provide for her own family and instilling that into her children is probably very important. But I guess, you know, as, you know, as a role model, as parents or Filipino parents that may have the best intentions in doing that, right? Maybe it can also put us in a position where we don't really see the full picture. So I guess speaking from a, from a parental ex perspective, if, you know, being a, an immigrant parent and trying to raise my children in a certain way, right? What may be seen on one side from the parent side may not be seen from the, from the son or daughter on the other side of, you know, if my best our intentions are raising my children so that they continue to work hard, they are financially stable and they're setting themselves up for a good future. But I guess from what it means on the, the child side of it, or when you're growing up in your upbringing, right? Maybe you don't see it that way. And maybe the experiences that we have and our ideas that we get from our parents aren't always the best fit in terms of the culture that we're being brought into. So I guess dive a little bit more on how, right? I'm sure that your mom had a, the best intentions on trying to use her adversity as an example for you to, to keep striving for the best. But talk about what that really did for you and how difficult may, that may have been. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to back up first yeah, because yeah. we're using again um, that I'm not too sure how much has been defined on uh, your show, mm -hmm. but um, let's go back and talk about second generation American Filipino. Right. Um, yes. So conventionally people of my generation are identified by Filipino Americans or Phil Ams as first generation born in the United States. Yeah. Um, as was taught to me, during a field school um, when I did uh, heritage research um, in indigenous Ibugao, um, we should not necessarily be centering the narrative around where a person was born, mm -hmm. but rather what, what are they centering their identity around? Um, and to that end, 
As far as second generation is concerned, I consider myself a second generation immigrant because I'm a child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, Amphil would be the subversive of the Phil Am. So as I speak and how I behave is more prominent in my American identity than it is in my Filipino identity. Mm-hmm. And that's due to the fact that I habitually in the US. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up before yes. I proceed with answering your question. Yeah. Um, which is to talk about how her adversity um, influenced my adversity person. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way okay. to put it. So, what are the adversities that mm-hmm. I face? Um, race is certainly, and culture, one that I encounter as part of my American Filipino identity. Um, This was demonstrated to me when I went to the polling place and as per higher income living areas, you're surrounded by people who politically are in favor of that right side per Mm se. Um, And when I go there and in the morning and I decide that me and my mom are going to speak Tagalog. Yeah. Um, and then you get weird scares. <laughs> um, those are the particularities of race as one of the angles um, yeah. of oppression that I face. Now, that's just one of my intersecting identities. I'm also part of the LGBTQ community. I consider myself gender fluid as well as um, on the spectrum of sexual orientation. And this is apparent in terms of people stereotyping me or typologizing me when I enter heteronormative spaces. So I didn't come out. I had a half coming out when I was 16. I came out to my brother. Um, It was not received that well. So I remained in the closet up until halfway through my first semester, first year of college. Um, I was up in Albany, which was not a particularly facilitating place for the LGBTQ community Mm. from my experience. Um, I didn't have the knowledge or the guidance to come out the way that I did when I subsequently transferred back into an undergrad in the city. Um, At Hunter College, where I had a liberal arts education, I I bloomed as somebody part of the LGBTQ community. Um, This is not as readily apparent in New York, the greater New York City area, because LGBTQ people exist here and they're Mm -hmm. visible here. And whether or not you accept it, we're here. Yeah, yeah. Now, that has only become more openly acceptable over time. Right. Um, So I'm going to speak a little bit to what I did for a job when Mm -hmm. I was an undergrad. So while pursuing my BA in anthropology, I was a canvasser for 
a third party organization who fundraised at the grassroots level for nonprofit organizations like Planned Parenthood Federation of America, ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, among, oh, in addition to Doctors Without Borders, among other mm -hmm. progressive organizations. Um, a canvasser is somebody who, in the style that I did it, will stand on the street with a clipboard, they think, <laughs> hey, you have a minute for women's rights? <laughs> Come yeah. talk to me. Um, and there, I also faced um, oppression as an LGBTQ person of color, mm. um, talking to strangers who had the audacity to approach strangers about a progressive cause, whether or not they supported it. Um, we call these people non-supporters. And what I remember in those moments where people would be like, fuck you and fuck your cause, is that my parents got me here mm -hmm. so that I can be the person who I am. That's the way I exert my privilege in the face of adversity. Sure. Um, it was not until much later that I became more open about a third intersection of an oppressed identity that I hold. And this has much to do with my psychiatric diagnosis um, of bipolar one disorder. So there you have it. Mm -hmm. Someone part of the BPOC community, yeah. LGBTQ, and on government papers or documented, um, has a documented disability. Yeah. Um, one that I manage with therapy and psychiatry because again, I have the privilege of being in an insurance pool mm. um, and I turned 26 this year. So yeah. I uh, enrolled into state insurance Medicaid mm -hmm. to continue my, um, my treatment. Yeah. So being a person with bipolar one disorder is something that when I'm faced with the obstacles that I'm faced, I think about how far I've progressed along my illness. Sometimes I feel like I'm self-stigmatizing when I call it an illness because this is just a facet of who I am as a person right. that in some lights could be thought of negatively, but in others, I use it to my advantage to empathize because the way I see it is that I have this full spectrum of emotional range. Mm -hmm. And to that end, it helps me to empathize with people, to understand right. people, and to even help others communicate how they feel. Mm -hmm. Those are all good things. Yeah. But if you saw me as a stranger who was in a manic episode, and let's talk about this one time where I was so manic, I had just came back from Europe and I drove myself to a parking lot, two cities north, and was doing gymnastics on the concrete. To some extent that's mania, but Is it well received by people who saw me? 
there were strangers who approached me and they're like, are you okay? Like, this doesn't look normal. This is not conventional. Right. And, and the things that happened subsequently, like um, the ambulance was called. I spoke to cops. I was wow. on I was an adult. That's the kind of stigma I face. And that's the, that's the kind of thing that I have to deal with having this kind of condition mm-hmm. that to those um, emergent responders are like, there's something wrong with him. Yeah. And that's exactly why, because that's not the whole picture of me. Yeah. Um, that's why I have to think about what my parents did for me when they came here and what they afforded me to have this kind of treatment mm-hmm. so that I can continue to be successful in what I'm doing. Yeah. A lot of things that I'm processing there and that I want to want to touch upon because what I really appreciate in the honesty of your stories and right of being a part of so many, you know, different types of communities, right? And putting yourself as a part of different identities that hold true to who you are, right? Maybe in the public perspective, different spaces of the LGBTQ community or having a medical condition are not always seen in the right light, right? There's a certain perspective and there's a certain narrative that comes along with being a part of these different communities. And sometimes it drowns out the actual raw, genuine experiences that people in these communities go through. And like, I loved how you said that, you know, having a bipolar one disorder, right? Some people may see it on the physical side of it of maybe you have an episode or maybe you are going through some type of situation and people only focus in on what they see, right? But for you, on the other hand, since it is such a range of emotions, since it is such a range of feelings, it allows you to connect and empathize with people that may be going through the same thing. And that's something that I'll probably never fully understand with not having the condition, right? But it's something that I can appreciate knowing that there is that level of intimacy and that level of understanding through having it in experience and being able to share that in a positive way for other people that may have the same situation or condition, right? Same thing I think about when I, when I process about what goes on with LGBTQ communities all across the globe, right? And that comes with the idea of allyship and, you know, never really truly knowing those experiences, but understanding that, within those lifestyles, within those identities, there is so much rich and powerful stories and narratives that allow us as people to empathize and allow us to connect with one another on a deeper level that may be not seen on the outside per se, right? And so this idea of truly knowing someone not based off of popular idea or right, different rhetorics or stereotypes and all these different social constructs, right? It's, it really comes down to knowing the people and the person for who they truly are and what they do in those spaces, 
right? Because it matters of how we use our experiences to maybe better other communities or help contribute to other communities. And it's so easy to forget that because there is such a fine line that's drawn based off of what we learn and what we experience in popular media and social media and right when all these different different things that play such a big factor in how we perceive different communities but that's why i love doing what i do and that's just continuing to talk and continuing to share and learning from one another because it's so important to learn from other people's experiences and be able to process on what that means for our own lives right and so when you mention things of coming from a American Filipino background, maybe someone that would normally categorize themselves as second generation Filipino American now has something to think about of, do I habituate more with my Filipino side than my American side or vice versa, right? And that's something that's maybe such a small nuance, but does make a huge difference for people that identify in the American Filipino culture. Right, and it's good to push this idea of being very intentional. Maybe careful is not the right word, but being very genuine and intentional with your identity, right? Because since there is so many different ways to describe different terms and different things, it's important to just know who you are and be able to express that in a way that is appropriate for, for all spaces, right? And it's just being very honest when you say that you're family, your, your mother and your parents being able to provide you some type of privileged environment, privileged upbringing in a sense of where you grew up, I, because of that, right, I feel more in tuned or I feel more in touch or I just identify more with my American side over my Filipino side. As for other people that may have other types of adversity and other types of upbringings, it would mean the other way around. And so it's within that honesty of recognizing the way I am is because of my American side. It's because of the constructs that I have growing up or my boundaries or my privileges that I had growing up. And it's just important to recognize by knowing your own experiences and by knowing your parents and your grandparents' experiences, you're able to articulate how you would identify yourself in these spaces. And that's so important because not everyone's going to have that same experience. But if I just call myself a Filipino American and I generalize it with all Filipino Americans, right? That, that may cause trauma for other people or that may cause you know, gripes and might strike someone a different way. And so that goes along with knowing how important it is to be confident in how we define our identities and being confident in that. I know that it's everyone has their own right, their own trauma that they have to go through and their own idea and their own way of processing the communities that they're a part of. And maybe not everyone is willing to accept different parts of their identity yet, right? Like when you mentioned that it took you some while before you can fully, quote unquote, come out of the closet to be okay with who you are as part of the, the LGBTQ community. And that's okay, right? Because it's within everyone's experiences that they work on their own time to really figure out and be confident saying, this is who I am. Please accept me for who I am. And I'm not saying that these are the only two or three examples, right? It extends for all races. It extends for all cultures. It all extends for all denominations. And so I think it's just really important that you set up that background. And I really appreciated, Chris, how you set the tone first by saying, you know, 
let me backtrack first. Let me define adversity. Let me define who I am so that I can give you context to why I am who I am. So that's just a great way to, to really start it off. But, you know, diving more into, into that, you definitely talked about how your experiences and your identities and the communities that you're a part of really shape you in trying to break this mold and really serve the communities that you're part of, whether it's, you know, Phil Am or Amphil or the queer community, right, in all these different spaces. How do you navigate using all of those experiences when it comes to advocating specifically through your through pursuing an MPH program at NYU? That's a very good question. And the first thing that comes to mind in answering, answering and responding to that is one at a time, mm. one at a time. Um, I'm going to also name the legal scholar who coined the term intersectionality, Kim, yeah. Kimberly Crenshaw, um, because this is widely used in social science theory and also in public health. Mm -hmm. um, the easiest way to understand, let's say my identity is three-dimensional, right? I have a, a race identity, mm -hmm. a sexual uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, right? Soji, um, and a disability. We'll call that X, Y, Z plane. Um, in the first dimension of race, I I do connect to people. Um, in that regard, so in terms of how I've done that in my MPH program, um. When I first connected to my race from a career perspective, it was when I did the Ipuga archaeological project back in 2016. Mm -hmm. Other ways that other AMPHILs or Phil AMs connect to the Filipino communities through clubs and organizations and undergrad or college, um, that wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. I did it through anthropological and archaeological scholarship. And I think that made it quite unique, such that when I went on to pursue an MPH, um, they knew that I had it within me to uplift American Filipino and Phil Am health. Yes. Um, so when I entered the MPH program, I searched through a wide variety of faculty and discovered that one of the deans of the nursing school mm -hmm. is a Filipino American scholar. He happens to also be Ilongo. And wow. he also happens to spearhead an organization called Kalusugan Coalition, which directly translates into health coalition mm -hmm. there i was able to and i'm still able to connect with the filipino american community in queens as part of a patient-centered outreach out, outcomes research project mm -hmm. um and through what i specialize in which is qualitative data analysis 
I'm able to exercise that in the context of being Filipino American. So we as a collective discover what are the issues going on with Filipino Americans mm-hmm. and as means to help and chronic diseases like heart disease, right. obesity, cancers. Um, how do those interact with the coronavirus, for example? Wow. Culturally, as well as resource-wise, because yeah. not every Filipino-American you meet um, is of the education of the stereotype nurse. Yeah. Some of them come here with a high school education and yes. they work a different job. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing because that's the heterogeneity of the Filipino-American, American-Filipino identity. Yes. Um, so through that kind of scholarship, we're able to investigate the and demystify the model minority myth Mm-hmm. which states that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are the models of the minority because <laughs> generalizably they're of a higher income and higher wealth, otherwise known as socioeconomic status or SES, yes. is associated with better health. Mm-hmm. But culturally, and I, maybe you know this, um, through the Philippine Americans and American Filipinos, you know, that that's not the case <laughs> for all of them. Yeah. We're still in poor health and it's masked by our wealth. The last time I did research on this, I believe the U.S. Census demographics suggested that the median income was about $80,000 for Filipino Americans. That's a lot of money. And that's a lot of health. Yeah. And why... Are we suffering from chronic diseases? Why is that happening? So that's one. Two, with the LGBTQ community, here's a research question that I investigated in one of my field methods classes. How does lack of LGBTQ education impact the ER nurse's ability to provide care? I did a pre-test interview with an ER nurse in New York City and this is just the sample n equals one so yeah this has fully been researched to the rigor that i could make these kinds of claims yeah but just to make an example of how i use my intersecting identities to propel what i'm doing in my career or scholarship is i'm using what i know from my experience, I'm investigating how things are poor and how we could make them better for these intersecting identities. So mm-hmm. roughly I discovered, and this is documented in the scientific literature, that because there are so few hours in nursing and med school curriculums, the care that clinicians provide in the emergent setting is sometimes insufficient Mm. for people of alt from heteronormative sexual orientations and gender identities. Um, So to go even further into mental illness, I recently attended a 
Philippinex American Public Health Conference. And I attended a, a talk about civic unrest um, and mental, mental illness exacerbation due to the coronavirus pandemic, because that's also documented um, in science that quarantine and yeah. new ways we have to socialize in person or remotely is taking a toll on generalizably people's health. Right. And that I think was the first interaction in which I came out to strangers as I'm American Filipino and I have a psychiatric, a severe psychiatric disability. Yeah. So before I did that, I had to come to understand what is it like to be of a severe psychiatric disability? And in my education, I, I learned about roughly schizophrenia in China and how policy and epidemiology informs how we provide systems, community-based systems to help those of severe psychiatric illness. Personally, I did it through X and Y plane by mm. showing up as both American Filipino and with a mental illness. Yeah. Do there exist others who are of the same three-dimensional plane? I'm sure. Yeah. Um, how long did it take me to arrive at this conclusion that I can <laughs> use that through XYZ plane? It took me until this semester. Forever? My, <laughs> forever, yeah. I mean, I just turned 26. So it took a while. Yeah. I mean, I knew I was all of these things, but I only had the capacity to be those things one at a time. Mm. And that's my advice for if you're going to use your identities and oppressions to pursue or progress something, social justice, we'll call it social justice. Yeah. One at a time. You do it one at a time. And when you're ready, maybe two at a time. Wow. And when you become specialized, I'm not here yet, but maybe three at a time. There are organizations that do advocate for all three at the same time. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit I'm not I'm not the expert, but eventually I'm going to try to do three at a time. Yeah. I'm also going to say that and go back to circle back to mm -hmm. yes. I, I live in Westchester and I have access to, you know, XYZ resources. Yeah. I've got to use those resources to my advantage in order to uplift those who don't have it mm -hmm. and perhaps those who share my identities. And this isn't, yeah. this doesn't mean that I only help those who share my identities. Of course. Just that that's what I prefer because that's what I know. Yeah. So... Does that answer your question? <laughs> definitely, definitely does. Because I just want to think first of with something so complex when it comes to public health, right? When you have the so many different facets or factors that play into public health, we could be looking at racial demographics. We could be talking about social economical advantage. We could be looking at all these different things that you can name. And I love how you pretty much minimized it into this one statement of one at a time, right? 
because of the fact that there is so much that goes into why certain populations and different racial groups go through their their disadvantages in health and whatever what you may call it it really does come down to focusing on just one part of that story or one part of that quote unquote equation right because if you take into account of all the different things that may play a part into why filipino americans have such poor heart health right well this opens up a no whole new conversation that's going to take years to unpack, years to gain research on, and it's going to take a lot of time, resources, and an energy to maybe not even get a full answer, right? And I'm sure it's something that scholars and professionals have been tackling on for so long. But when you say things like one at a time, what specific identity or what community do you really want to hone in and focus on and care most about at this very moment, right? And it's when you get into that question, like maybe that's a very difficult question for a lot of people. But when you focus in on that question and you take it one step at a time, when you take it into, take into account just thinking about spending all your time and resources and scholarly energy into maybe the Filipino community and understanding that. Or maybe it's understanding the LGBTQ community or maybe it's those that are struggling with mental health, right? Whether, whatever narrative or whatever identity that you want to focus in on, stick with that and then dive more deeper into how those experiences that you played a part into as a kid, or maybe your own personal anecdotes of what you know and what you want to know and let that lead you in your research and in your advocacy to advocate for these different communities. And then the difficulty comes with, well, now I could do two at a time, right? Because I'm understanding what goes into advocating for one group of, you know, one population. Well, now I can take in that other side of me or that other experience and see how does that play a role into what I already spent years in trying to unpack and demystify. And then, like you said, hopefully pursuing, you know, like you mentioned, a PhD and just more scholarly background, I can start to maybe understand another tier to it but just to put it all together it really does taking things one at a time one at a time whatever that means to you right in advocacy or allyship or whatever the case there's only so much that we can focus on and understand right because where if you put too many ideas or too many right concepts on your plate that things get really complicated and you have to dive deeper into the research that may not be there like you said right a lot of maybe of these resources or research is just lacking in areas because it's just something that's been of recent in terms of coming to accept different communities and understand their shortcomings or what their oppression right and so since maybe different topics and different conversations are so new I don't really know how to advocate for them. I can only really go off of my own experiences because I know that there's so much work to be done, right? And since you get into that space of, well, I don't know what advocacy looks like for these communities because it has not been there yet to the extent that I would want it to be in there. But that's why I'm pursuing an MPH. That's why I'm pursuing a PhD because I want there to be more research or I want there to be more advocacy 
so that people coming along that are grow up, growing up in a privileged American Filipino background that's struggling with mental health, but also part of the you know, queer community, they will too be able to say, I kind of understand this, or I can see examples of it in research and I can identify with it because of the people that have paid the way before it. But when you're in the position where there has been no precedent set, set, that's where the difficulty comes and where it really does taking time and analyzing and picking just one part of your identity or one part of public health that you really care about and putting in all your time and resource into understanding that so that you can slowly add in the layers to that, to that cake for, you know, for that analogy. But I just really loved how you really broke it down for us and, you know, taking things that may seem very dense, may seem very complicated and complex, which it very much is, right? But knowing that that's what it takes to understand public health in general, right? Public health is on everyone's mind when it comes to coronavirus, but what people may see at first is just everyone's getting infected. Those that are exposed to the virus are infected and, you know, people are dying, right? Just to put very simply. But then you take into the accounts of, well, why are different communities being disproportionately affected by the coronavirus? Then you think about money, you think about economic advantage, you think about their living situations, and you think about the, right, the list goes on and on, basically. And once you understand that concept, then it really gets into, wow, you know, obviously public health is already complicated. And I'm not saying that a lot of people see it as very simple to understand, but even something as we're going through right now that is right in front of us with the, with the virus, it really comes down to advocating for the, for the communities, not just on a scientific level of saying, well, this group just doesn't have access to certain doctors or the best hospitals in the area. It's not just that, right? And it comes to years of understanding the history of these different cultures and of these different races of how maybe something that was something that's seen as a problem now and how the virus is affecting that, how it's been like that in terms of the system for such a long time. And the virus has just exasperated in people seeing these types of issues. And I think that's something that I don't want to say appreciate, but I do want to note that because of something that is so global, right? people are slowly starting to recognize that it's not just the virus that was at play, or it's not just these different diseases or conditions that people are struggling with. It's the years and the history behind how we got here, right? And that because of what we're going through now, maybe we can start to see how those different socioeconomic factors or how those different racial oppression is now starting to play a point in us really, really getting affected and even extending far past our own culture, far past our own race, and seeing now the intersectionality, like you mentioned, and just getting really, honestly, a lot more complicated, but that's the conversations that we need to have, right? So that research and time and resources and empathy can be put into those. So that's, that's really good. And when I, when I think about it, what can I take from that? It's knowing myself one at a time, uh, contributing to different spaces, and contributing to advocacy one at a time, right? And just focusing on one thing that I really care about or one thing that really strikes home for me and really using my own experiences 
to find people in those same experiences or maybe people that aren't but care about the same thing as I do. So it's really nice. And so thinking back to, you know, I appreciate how you're half across the world in New York, right? I think I've mentioned this once in the previous podcast, but I've only had the chance to, to visit New York on a small vacation doing, during a New Year's. And so I appreciate New York for its Russell and bustle type of feel, right? Always constantly moving. But I also want to dive deeper into, you know, when I think of the demographics in New York, maybe that's looking at African-American populations or black communities, or maybe, like you said, a large progressive movement that goes on in different spaces. When I think about these racial and, you know, political demographics, what inspires you in your MPH program specifically to give you the tools to help change and advocate for underrepresented groups in New York, for example? That's, that's a very good question. <laughs> to which I, I think about why I attended so many Black Lives Matters um, protests mm. in the summer. And when I think about Black Lives Matters, I think about the Black lives who have influenced my life. And these are the friends who I grew up with. Yeah. These are the people who gave me homes in their home mm. and vice versa. And in general, I think it's part of community empowerment. Yeah. Um, Besides, you know, the MPH and the social determinants of health, which are all of these different social structures that influence health outcomes. Yeah. I think about the why when I lose my way. Mm. And I look to the people who are influenced by these systems and policies and policing that are in place. And that's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm because I think about my closest friends who are women of color. There you go. Have to go through things and float through these different spaces mm-hmm. and experience different kinds of oppression than I could ever imagine or right. experience. That's why what I think about when I think about community empowerment, which empowers mm-hmm. me to empower the community. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Specifically, I think about different neighborhoods. Um, I recently had to do field work in Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights, and I think about the local people there. I visit a friend often in Washington Heights, and I see the local people there. Um, That's what really drives me to Mm -hmm. do this kind of work, because I'm not simply just this privileged person from Westchester who arrives at things and is openly accepted into all communities. Yeah. There's a lot of shifting around and knowing yourself. In anthropology, you call this participant observation. Okay. Um, Being forthcoming about who you are Mm -hmm. in order to participate and observe who they are. So those are the kinds of things I think about when I think about why I do what I do. Yeah. And like I said, 
it boils down to how do we make the community stronger such that we could have more community-based protection from the virus. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what it comes down to. I mean, it's not, it's not that these people who are not receiving adequate housing are experiencing poor health in silo. Mm-hmm. It's happening as a community in collective places, in geographic places. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's all about community. Mm-hmm. Community empowerment was a good way to put it, right? Because pursuing something such as an MPH or a PhD um, in the same field, it really does boil down to community and really understanding not just your own community, but the communities that you're going to serve. And so I asked, and I thought about this question because, right, being in New York, and I believe the last time I checked the census data, it was about 24% or roughly 24% identify within the, the Black or African American community, right? And when I compare that to communities that I was a part of, maybe in California, for example, that goes down to about, I think, seven. I mean, someone fact check me if I'm wrong, but um, just to see that discrepancy of, you know, I had a lot of, you know, exp- you know, I'm very fortunate that I was be- able to have a lot of friends that were part of different racial communities. And I, I appreciate that I've been able to-, to learn from not only those experiences, but just be able to share stories and grow up with people that did not look like me and I really appreciate that, you know, where I got to, to just understand and appreciate everyone for who they are. But at the same time, right, knowing that my experiences are limited in itself. And so when I hear about maybe what the Black Lives Movement or pursuing an MPH in New York, half across the world might look like, it's thinking about, well, how am I going to understand those communities in their communities? Because maybe someone that grew up in New York and is still pursuing more education in New York in an MPH or a PhD program, you know, maybe for someone on the outside, it, it may seem as, well, I, well they, know, they know the communities. They grew up there. That's something that maybe they were, that they should represent really well. But it's also this idea of staying humble and, and knowing that communities are completely different just a few miles down, a few blocks down, right? And that's the crazy part of when we think about social determinants when it comes to health, geographically. This one area of, you know, X racial group may be going through something that's completely different a few blocks down or a few miles down in a completely different city because of those geographic and that privilege and all those, those different things. So when it comes to studying this, right? I loved how you mentioned fieldwork played such a huge part of your experiences because you were able to actually go down into these direct communities and understand, maybe interact and learn from the local people there and being very honest, saying, my experiences are my experiences. But if I'm going to serve you as a future doctor or as a future scholar or as a future academic, I really just need to know your story and see how, how do I play a part into that in helping uplift in different spaces, community empowerment, like you said. But you cannot do community empowerment 
without knowing that the communities that you're going to be a part of, you may not be part of that community just yet, right? Whether you understand what they're going through or whether you have shared similar experiences, it's, su it's such an important idea to know and acknowledge that we are students in the process as we continue to do this, that we are constantly learning from one another. But even once we become of academic, Ex, or not excellence, but once we get to such a, an academic prestige, it's still about that learning process. And what can I do to continue to further my knowledge and further my understanding? Maybe that's field work, right? Maybe that's going out and interacting. Maybe that's research and, you know, right? All these different things that I honestly love about an MPH. You know, I actually considered an MPH before I pursued my master's in education. So I took the, the educational route instead of the public health route. But albeit, you know, I definitely appreciate kind of the, the different conversations that go into advocating through public health and advocating and using not just a degree, but that experience of maybe it's field work, maybe it's research, maybe it's data analysis, like what you do, right? And how do we use this these skills and how are we using or how are we using these skills more importantly to not just further our own understanding, but put it to actual action. And I like how that really makes me think about right, my own education and how, I, how am I using my own education to directly affect different communities and advocate for different communities. I know that how to do that as a teacher with, right? with my experiences in science and my experiences in education. But I guess if we want a broader scope or if we want a greater impact, what else about my own privilege or what else about my own education can I take to continue to make change or continue to empower someone else? Maybe that's in a community or maybe that's individually, maybe that's part of an organization. How else can I use my time, my effort, to continue to do that. Now, I'm not talking about spreading yourself thin, right? Because I'm, I'm talking as if I have some, like we all have this time in the world to do all these different things. And that's where it gets complicated, right? Because you have to choose, you have to choose your battles and you have to pick what learning moments do you want to have. And right, you don't want to spread yourself too thin or else your cup runs empty and you go into right emotional and psychological turmoil so you really want to focus in on what is going to keep you not just happy what is going to feed into your own soul and i think that's really important when you mention empowerment because at least for me speaking from my own experiences when i help empower someone else that empowers me right because i know that i'm doing work and i'm making i'm being a part of the change so if i don't feel empowered in what i'm doing Right? I can only drag that out for so long. I can only continue to do that activity or whatever that is for so long because essentially I'm providing my service into someone or into a group, but I myself am not empowered to keep on doing this. So I think it really comes down to this, this word, empowerment. What is keeping you empowered? What is pushing you even though you're tired, even though you're stressed, even though you're confused? right? All the time, what's keeping you going? And then you have to think about, well, what's going to empower me? What's going to really hit home from, from my heart? Is it something that I identify with? Is it something that my friends are really struggling with? Maybe it's something that, you know, maybe I have a lot of 
African-American friends and I see that they're struggling with this, well, how can I contribute in a way that is playing a part into the healing, right? Maybe I myself do not identify with the African-American community, but that doesn't mean that I just don't do anything about it, right? It means I continue to find my place and my role in understanding how can I play a part into this and making things better for, you know, for these different communities. And this goes for, for a lot of different other situations. So it really just comes down to what do you care about? What do you know? What are you experiencing? What are you educated in most importantly, right? Because education is a huge part of being able to contribute to empowerment. Cannot have empowerment without education. That's a huge part. So I just love how you really gave us, you painted this picture, right, Chris, of, you know, it really took me to not just understand myself, but the people that I'm serving. And it does take a lot of time. It does take a lot of energy in order to do that. But in the end, it's only going to make me more empathetic. It's only going to make me more understanding. It's only going to make me a better person because of the fact that I'm thinking of someone else other than my other than myself. So it's it's really, really important to note that. But Chris, we've talked a lot about a lot of great things about your story how you grew up and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, to your stories. And that's, that's the most important thing too, right? And knowing that there are people that maybe you and I won't even meet, but maybe listening to this and say, I can relate to that. And that's the most important thing. And how, knowing that they can push through it and that they can find solace or they can find inspiration in that. But we also talked about what the MPH program means to you and what it's allowing you to do in New York and even past that. I know you're applying for a PhD program and that's awesome, you know, furthering your education to have a bigger, even bigger impact, but also talking about what advocacy looks like through community empowerment, but also being humbled in that fact. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Chris. For everyone else, thank you so much for tuning in today. Let us know what your, your favorite theme was from this podcast, right? In the comments, let us know your thoughts, how you continue to empower your communities, but Chris, until the next time, thank you so much. Thank you, Kastner. I really appreciate you having me here. Of course. I'll see you later. <laughs>